Father, we do thank you tonight in the news of this catastrophic fire for the extraordinary courage of the men and women who go in and fight these fires, whether uh, running emergency vehicles or the uh, teams that go up on the ground or the folks who are flying all kinds of um, devices to try and overcome the fire. And we pray that you would bless their efforts. We pray that you would keep them all safe. Uh, we pray especially that the ranch would be able to be preserved. And we thank you tonight for the opportunity uh, to take up this uh, chapter. I, I thank you especially for the two very powerful insights that uh, Dr. Ferguson brings forth for us in this closing section of the Upper Room Discourse. And we pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear uh, that in understanding we might grow to love our great triune God, the more so, and in that love to serve uh, more faithfully. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. All right, chapter is Confusion Before Clarity. John chapter 16, verses 17 through 33. Uh, let me read that text. <clears throat> I, oh, by the way, I have fiddled. I, I did find some settings in the uh, in my MacBook Air that I didn't quite understand what they did, but it seemed to me it might have something to do with making the pickup on my mic more sensitive. And so I've turned that up. Um, so if anything sounds really weird about the sound, then I did something wrong today. <laughs> but just just let me know if. Uh, if we're having trouble. All right, the text. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying in a little while, you will not in a little while and you will not see me in a little while. You will see me truly, truly. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give to you until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that you will that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and am now leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each one to his, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, a very powerful portion of this discourse, and um, Dr. Uh, Ferguson opens his section by uh, a little bit puckishly 
wondering at the uh, failure of the disciples to understand and whether Jesus could have passed a preaching class or whether he was a poor communicator or um, and that leads him to make the point that he wants to make and that is that no, the disciples were the ones with the problem and the problem was that they just didn't have the spiritual understanding uh, to grasp what Jesus was saying about it, uh, about the, uh, um, the kingdom of God. They needed illumination, and uh, when, when the truth would dawn on them through that illumination by the Spirit, um, they would be able to see. They weren't at this point yet. They were confused. They didn't understand what these uh, somewhat terse sayings were about in a little while. Um, and on uh, page 160, it leads uh, Dr. Ferguson to, I think, a very interesting observation. And that is that um, very often the way our minds work is we're sort of settled in some bit of knowledge, some area. Um, and then we are learning something more, learning something new. And quite often, the first steps in that is that everything becomes confusing, more confusing than it was, uh, because you don't know how everything fits together just yet. The things that you thought you were settled in suddenly take on a new light in relationship to this new knowledge. Um, and... Um, the um, he uses a nice illustration, it seemed to me, the, the jigsaw puzzle. Someone has begun to put it together, but they've gotten it wrong. They've pushed the wrong pieces together. And um, so the puzzle needs to be taken apart in order to be put back together again. Uh, but the first step in that, then, is all the piece, pieces seem to be in a jumble. And... Uh, you can see that it's actually a stage in the clarification of our knowledge and the growth of our knowledge. I thought that was very helpful because understanding that about ourselves can help us to be patient with the process of learning and coming to new understandings concerning things that we thought we knew uh, uh, about and were settled in, um, but we could learn more about and see that knowledge expand. Uh, so I thought that was a very um, uh, important observation to make in the course of uh, ped pedagogically what's going on. And it can be a good lesson for us to learn and remember and, and uh, apply to ourselves when we're trying to grow in what we understand. So um, then the, the lovely quote on 161 from a British economist that the significance of Christmas will not become clear until Easter um, and, you know, he was talking about the profits from uh, gift sales and so on. It would take uh, that long to see this economic impact of it all. But um, for the Christian theologian, he, it becomes a very profound insight uh, that the uh, meaning of Christmas, so far as the gospel is concerned, um, uh, can't become clear until Easter, until the resurrection. Um, he compares the economist to Caiaphas uh, when he, as the high priest, spoke the truth, even though it was more true than he knew. And if he had understood it, he wouldn't have wanted it to be true. The, the point is that a resurrectionless gospel, as he, as he puts it, is no gospel at all. This is the powerful point that um, Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. Uh, that if the dead be not raised, we of all people are the most pathetic. Um, and it, um, this was a wonderful point. Paul had to insist on it in his day. And in our day, there are people who want to be Christian, who, but uh, uh, they, they, they talk about um, the Easter faith. Uh, and the Easter faith is in the idea of resurrection, not a physical resurrection of a physical body itself. Uh, I think it was uh, Bultmann who said that um, 
if they found the bones of Jesus in the grave tomorrow, uh, that would not uh, interrupt or inhibit the exercise of the Easter faith. And he was trying to disconnect, in fact, the gospel from history altogether because history seemed too iffy a matter, uh, too difficult to deal with. He, He wanted something simply transcendent that couldn't be touched by the vagaries of time and space. Uh, But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the redemptive plan that the creator of the universe had. And it behooves us to follow his plan and not the speculations of folks who uh, are trying to, in some way, protect the gospel. We'll see more of that in a little bit. But um, in any case, then a second Uh, truth illustrated in what Jesus is saying here. A principle that on page 162, Dr. Ferguson uh, says is a principle that governs all discipleship. Um, And he picks up on the idea that through the pain of labor, the joy of birth comes. And um, he wants to say that for the Christian, this is true but it's not simply a chronological observation. That is, that joy can follow pain, but that rather it's a causal relation, that pain itself is productive of the joy that follows. A beautiful sentence at about the middle of 162, at the conclusion of the paragraph, beginning Jesus' illustration, In the life of discipleship, there is a joy that seeketh me through pain. Using the wonderful uh, line from the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Uh, In other words, um, the joy, the glory to be produced is produced out of the raw materials uh, of suffering. Um, um, And so... Knowing this, it enables the Christian to have courage in the face of difficult times. On 163, he uh, quotes the great English poet William Cooper um, and from his uh, hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, one of my favorite hymns. But the, the, especially the second line he quotes, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Uh, That, uh, um, in such a wonderful image, captures what Dr. Ferguson's trying to get at. Um, The point is, we uh, would be naive if we thought we could always understand what God is doing and uh, what means he intends and why. Uh, But we know that, nevertheless, He is good and wise and all-powerful, and that sorrow um, will lead to joy. Um, This is, of course, beautifully put by Paul in that passage in um, uh, 1 Corinthians. This light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Uh, But to see this, Dr. Ferguson says, we have to be looking in the right direction, not in the things that simply appear, but the at the unseen realities revealed to faith in God's word. Uh, that's the place where we find what's eternal, what is not transient, but what is permanent. And, um, of course, Jesus is bringing this up at, because of the experience they're about to undergo, that he's taken from them and um, they're going to be confused and uh, scattered and lamenting. Uh, But it's just going to be a little while from Friday through to Sunday morning until the resurrection. But that tribulation is going to give way uh, to joy and glory, and it will have been through that tribulation. Um. And no one will be able to take that joy away. Um, and this is, is was exactly true for Jesus. And so he weaves in here that wonderful passage from Hebrews 12, too. That Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, 
endured the cross, despising its shame. Uh, this was to be the pattern of the next few days for Jesus, for the disciples. But then Dr. Ferguson concludes, it's in fact the paradigm for all their days and all our days. Understanding this sustains disciples through suffering. Well, let me pause there uh, for a minute on those couple of points and uh, uh, see if you have questions or uh, comments about any of this. Anyone? All right, well, let's uh, press on then. The... um, um, he offers the important qualification that Christians are not masochists. Um, we don't love suffering for its own sake. We would be glad to avoid suffering, and we have a calling to do so when we can. Um, but uh, the main thing is that when we find in God's providence that we come to a place of pain like that, uh, we need to have our hearts ready to pray Lord, use this. Sanctify it to me. That was the phrase the Puritans used to use. Lord, sanctify this difficult time to me. In other words, make it a means of my uh, growing in holiness. Please produce glory in it, through in me through it. Um, and this is um, virtually the first lesson that Jesus taught um, to his disciples after the resurrection. You remember in the road to Emmaus, his uh, um, penetrating question to the disciples who were so confused. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Um, True for the master, it is true for the disciples as well. Well... um, with those things in mind, then, he begins to have this uh, extraordinary conversation about a privilege that is going to be theirs. He says that they can go to the Father uh, in Christ's absence. They can go to him in Jesus' name. And um, we probably all have realized this, but maybe have never felt the full force of it, that no one had ever prayed in that way before. This was the precious privilege that was to come out of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension to the throne next to his father. Um, um, And when he starts to speech on that, teach on this question, the whole business of the confusion and the figures of speech is attendant and... um, He now, however, is going to speak plainly. And this plain speaking, as I've said, um, has important uh, implications for two very interesting areas. This plain speaking about the Father uh, has a, a great impact on apologetics and on and has pastoral implications. So we're going to get this plain teaching about the Father, and then we're going to see what difference does that make in our defense of the faith, and what difference does that make in in terms of uh, pastoral care. So, first then, uh, let's get the plain teaching. Um, And the point is this, that there is a Father in heaven. This um, father is going to be the fa- is the father of his disciples, and he wants him to understand that. And he's not he, here speaking uh, rhetorically. He's not speaking metaphorically. Rather, he is speaking about reality. So you you understand in the old covenant, believers didn't call God Father in this sense. Uh, he was sometimes called Father in the sense that he was the creator of the world or the father of Israel, his son, because he was the creator of 
the nation of Israel. But now there's a new stage of uh, divine revelation. Now that the Son had come on the scene, the Father could be known, and because the Son would make him known. Um, God is the same both in Old Testament and New Testament, but his revelation of himself is progressive. Um, and uh, this he illustrates beautifully in a quotation from B.B. Warfield on page 167. Um, the Old Testament is like a room filled with beautiful things, but having very dim light, so that some things we can see but just barely, other things we can't even see at all. But with the introduction of light, gradually over time, we come to have a clearer view of what's in the room. Things that were only dimly seen now are crystalline, sharp-edged, and things that we couldn't perceive at all suddenly now appear. And it can change our whole sensibility. So that the revelation is not corrected by the fuller revelation that follows but perfected and extended and enlarged. Um, And then uh, Dr. Ferguson adds that um, there are a few places where you do get a a view of Father in this sense nearly, for example, Psalm 103.13. But he said if you go to the Sermon on the Mount you'll hear more references to your father uh, in that one sermon than the entire Old Testament. That's a striking reality. Um, God was eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but only with the appearance of the Son on earth does the fullness of this come into view, does it become clear. Um, So, that's the clarity uh, that comes in this teaching. And now we want to look at uh, the implications of this, the implications of the clarity of the Father for apologetics and the implication of it for uh, pastoral care. But again, let me stop for just a second and uh, see if um, anyone has a question. Um, Dave, it's Jenny. Yes. Um, I just, this section from B.B. Warfield is just wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so good to remember. And not only does the New Testament make clear what the Old Testament was in shadows and types, but this is something as humans that we grow in until, until we go to heaven. I mean, this isn't like, oh, well, I'm in the New Testament church and now I understand everything. But that light is um, increased showing as we continue in the faith. Yes. It's not a right. like, just one, one-time thing. Right. As we see with the disciples, <laughs> you know. The, right. Christ is there talking to them, talking to them, talking to them. And um, and they continue to grow through their, you know, after Christ is resurrected. And that's, in fact, the experience of the church through history. That right. though it has the whole of the deposit, the apostolic foundation, uh, more and more discernment, more and more light, uh, helps the church grow in a deeper understanding of the deposit that we have. Um and the great... and it's good to, for us, just as an application, I think, for us to remember as we are growing, and sometimes those growing pains are more painful than other times, <laughs> that right. we like stuck in a way that, like you were saying earlier, and we can't see through it, and we have patience that the Lord is in, uh, helping us with, and faith in Him. Yes. Wonderful, Jen. Bonnie or Bill or It's actually me, but Bill's oh. here too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um 
I'm just, what Jenny said really was what I was thinking of, but the thing, take it further, is to not be disheartened when we're struggling through those sorrows that God provides for us because we can feel like we haven't, how did I not prepare? Why, why am I not acting? But mm. the, the progression, yes. Jenny was saying, the encouragement is that it is progression and that looking forward to how God continues to teach us, I, that's just awesome. Yes, yeah, it sure is. Any other thoughts? All right, we're on page uh, 168 under the heading Apologetic Thinking. Um, the um, Dr. Ferguson renews the idea that uh, when Jesus speaks um, of the Father, he's not using an anthropomorphism. That is, and in a very lovely uh, uh, flip, he says, in fact, we need to realize that when we say Father about um, our Father in this world, we're using a theomorphism. God is the archetype, and the this worldly Father is the archetype. Um, it is, uh, fatherhood is not... Uh, projecting what we know of of our earthly fathers into the heavens, but on the contrary, uh, fatherhood in this world is um, part of the image of God uh, that is built into us. Uh, and uh, to know him as father and then have this worldly fathers, as it were, as, as ectypes, um, show us something of what that amounts to. That's a very profound um, point. Uh, it's, it's often uh, a critical point for folks who've grown up with fathers that didn't live up to any sense of the word uh, and who, for whom the word father um, is a terrible word, a frightening word. And the point that can be so powerful in helping to overcome that is that um, that that word doesn't really apply to a person who would act in such terrible ways. Uh, but there is a person that it does apply to, and it is your Heavenly Father, who will never leave you or forsake you or um, do harm to you. Uh, and that that trumps all this worldly fathers and the use of the term. Um, so a very important point there. And um, the uh, this lead that reflection leads him uh, then to look at one of the great objections uh, in the modern period against the Christian faith, and that is that uh, Christianity is nothing but a pro- pro- uh, a projection into the heavens of. Uh, my this-worldly needs. On page 169, he gives us a brief uh, discussion of the roots of this kind of thinking. Um, And they can be found in uh, Karl Marx, um, in Sigmund Freud, um, in uh, Ludwig Feuerbach, uh, and in Friedrich Nietzsche, um, as well as... uh, um, and he'll spend a little more time on uh, Schleiermacher. So um, at this point, I'm going to push go on the um, chat, and I hope you all got that. Um, and I think you can copy out of that chat to something else if you want. But let me say that right here, that... In my judgment, one of the greatest books that R.C. Sproul ever wrote was called The Psychology of Atheism. Um, the, uh, uh, he was just working on this uh, when Jenny and I got to the study center. Um, and it, it is a remarkable piece of work. It's been revised and given a new title, um, I thought the old title was just fantastic. Uh, 
but apparently wasn't clever enough for the titlers in the revision. It's now called, If There's a God, Why Are There Atheists? And uh, has a kind of a subtitle, Why Atheists Believe in Unbelief. Tyndall House had been responsible for the reprint, uh, but now it's being published by Christian Focus Publications uh, under uh, the same title. But in any case, let me just say a word to you about the book, uh, if you've not read it, to whet your appetite. Um, R.C. takes projectionism in the form that has been so powerful, the fourfold form that's been so powerful in the modern world, that of Sigmund Freud, uh, who argued that religion arises out of guilt and the fear of nature. And we want to project somebody that can relieve our guilt and be appeased so that nature won't be such a threatening place. Karl Marx's projectionism was that religion is used to keep the lower uh, classes happy. That's the point that uh, Dr. Ferguson mentions about uh, the uh, religion being the opiate of the masses. Ludwig Feuerbach um, had it that religion was only wish fulfillment. Uh, And Nietzsche, that religion is rooted in a person's weakness and fear. And uh, it's to give them a way of feeling strong, and uh, therefore it's invented for those who were spineless and lacked courage, uh, who couldn't be the ubermensch, the the superman. Um, And what R.C. does with this, now these are all world class, uh, the way we speak about it today, influencers. Uh, These four men had enormous impact on human thought. And what R.C. does in the book in a wonderful way is that he shows that every one of these points, though it has surface plausibility, is a non sequitur. In each case, R.C. shows that religion may be, may find its source in what these men have described. And in fact, false religions do find its source there. But none of those thinkers demonstrated that it can only be found there. And so it's a profound logical mistake to say something that may be the source of something or other is not to say that it's the only possible source. And... In fact, then, turning the tables, R.C. shows why false worldviews are generated. And he offers a biblical demonstration that unbelief is finely grounded in projection. In this case, a kind of reverse projection because of the psychological pressures resulting from a sinful will. Um He's picking up on Paul, saying that people don't want God in their thinking. And so they project onto idols and uh, things of this world, uh, make anything else ultimate except the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, uh, so that, that in fact, uh, there's a, not a psychology of Christian belief, it's rather a psychology of atheism. Uh, and it has nothing to do with the intellectual inadequacy of Christian truth. So it's a smallish book, uh, but it's just brilliant. And if you've not ever had a chance to read it, um, this would be a good occasion for you growing out of our study tonight to look at it. Um, I'm just curious, have any of you read it? Can you raise your hands? And Dave, I don't, I don't know how to raise my hand on Zoom, but I've read it. Uh, I read it when it was... Um, I, I picked it up at, a, at actually a leadership weekend with a Young Life Leadership Weekend back in the late 70s or the early 80s when R.C. was still up at uh, Stallstown. Yes. Uh, and I brought it back, and it was a wonderful book. And I learned later on, Jackie Griffith and I were comparing notes, and we 
we realized she was probably there at that time. Oh my goodness! <laughs> but it's you're right. It's it's an absolutely terrific book. Wonderful commendation. Yeah. Any, has anybody else read it? I couldn't see it. Yeah, I studied it with you, David Bria. Oh yes, of course. Wonderful, fantastic right. book. <laughs> right. And Steve, I yeah. see you have. I read it as well. Yes. Well, all right. Well, I hope you all take the opportunity to do it. It really is wonderful work. And uh, some of the, what R.C. does in the book, um, Dr. Ferguson is doing it, what we head into here. So we've got the idea of projectionism. We are seeing it rooted in some of these uh, thinkers from different fields. Uh, but he particularly points to Schler, uh, Friedrich Scher, Schleiermacher um, and his teaching that true religion lies in a sense of ultimate dependence. Now here he's re- reacting to the European... Oh, Kate? I don't mean to interrupt you, Dave. Oh, that's right. I'll ask a question. Well, no, no, I, I'm happy to be interrupted. I'm... So what I was thinking was, if, I might be wrong in this, but if R.C. Sproul is saying the opposite projection, wouldn't that be just as fallacious an argument? No, but because he shows uh, that um, the, that uh, according to the scripture's teaching, only projectionism can be the source of atheist thinking. That in the nature of the case, the human heart does not want God in its thinking. And so as an act of the will, finds ways to get God out of their thinking. You, you see, so the argument is, is bigger than just saying that there's a different projection. Oh yes, oh yes, yeah. R.C.'s claiming that this is built into the nature of fallen human beings. Uh, Marx, Forbeck, they all believe this, it, 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 it doesn't belong to everybody. It just belongs to the poor, stupid religious people. Um, but for the enlightened, of course, they're, they're liberated. They, they, don't, they don't have such projections to, uh, uh, such needs to project into the heavens. Do you see the difference? Yes. Yeah. Good point, Kate. Well, so um, Schleiermacher, um, the the Enlightenment uh, delivered a pretty serious assault on the idea that you could have objective knowledge of God, um, and in a host of ways, and that um, was a great threat to Christianity. On the one hand, there were those who tried to argue that uh, the arguments against an objective knowledge of God were themselves not sound. But others sought to avoid that problem. And Schleimarker was one. Um, he, and it's, I'm glad uh, Dr. Um, Ferguson points this out, because Schleimarker is, in a way, a sympathetic character. He thought he was going to save Christianity from what he called the cultured despisers of religion. And what he wanted to say is, no, objective knowledge of God, who cares whether we have it or not? That's not the point. Because the real essence of it all lies in the consciousness of the individual. Subjectively, I have a profound sense of dependence upon God. And that's where my belief in God uh, is rooted. Now, I mean, the problem there is that um, if there's no objective knowledge of God, then your profound sense of dependence, you know, might be a hangover or something. <laughs> um, the uh, And you can see that uh, the logic our sense of dependence on God as Heavenly Father, rather than indicating that there is such a being, only indicates a sense of need that is projected 
that that projects his insistence, and it's only a short step from there uh, to say then that religion is the opiate of the people. Uh, and on 170, Dr. Ferguson's point is this atmosphere continues today. It continues to be a very, very popular. Uh, you've probably, if you've talked to friends about the Lord, they might have say, say something like this. Uh, it's uniformly in my experience. That's okay for you. You need that. But I don't. Um, and uh, it's precisely here that then um, the, the point is, no, the Bible's claims are precisely not uh, that I need this and therefore this is the solution to my needs. The, the Bible's claim is first having to do with God, that God, maker of heaven and earth, is the one who created us and he created us for himself. He built it into us in that we're created in his image. And um, he created us for him that he would be our heavenly father. And, and so the, the uh, lovely point at the bottom of 171, um, the, we are not modeling his fatherhood on ours, nor projecting our need. Rather, this need is the inevitable implication of our creation in his image. We need him for exactly the same reason that fish needed water. That's how we were created. I, I think that's a beautiful line and, uh, and a very helpful apologetic point. And this upper room teaching uh, really helps to clarify it because Jesus is telling us we do have a heavenly father um, and uh, that is the foundation of all uh, fatherhood in this world. So questions further on the apologetic point. All right. Um, you know, there was a footnote somewhere that I wanted to comment on. I thought. Oh, just on um, page 169, footnote 7, he's talking about Feuerbach's uh, expression, theology is anthropology. That, uh, that is, when we talk about God, we're really talking about ourselves. Um, that is a very, very powerful idea that continues on today in a, in a number of uh, non-Christian assaults on Christianity, and it's good to have an understanding of all of that. When we talk about God, the Christian is insisting, we're not talking about ourselves, we're talking about the one who made us, who gave us the gift of speech, the capacity to know. Uh, all of these things find their ultimate um, uh, fulfillment in God. Um, Dave, yeah. another, just another thought of um, on this um, idea of weakness and you you might need God but I don't or um, the um, problem people have of being dependent on someone I think that carries on into our Christian life for some that we we can feel like it's weak that we need God so much even as a Christian I should be over that by now, you know, something like that. Or I, is it, do you know what I mean? Yes. That, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yep, uh, absolutely. And the point. time in his word and knowing and learning that we need him every day and that we 
can't keep all of that in our heads. Or, I mean, we can know that he has us in his hold, but that idea of growing and, uh, or what? Well, the, the Warfield, Warfield's little quip, I think, is the good guide on that. Um, uh, we need God like the fish needs water. Why? Because that's the way he was made, was to be in water. And we need God like we need bread. Why do we need bread? Because that's the way we're made. We, we can't say, oh, I'm strong enough now not to eat any longer. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, you said it well. Yeah. Thanks. All right. So, I mean, we need spiritual nourishment daily. Um, and uh, clearly, when Christ says, give us this day our daily bread, uh, he is including uh, all the necessities of the day under the image of bread. And one of those necessities is the bread of heaven um, to be nurtured in eternal life daily. All right. Well, on to pastoral medicine. The second implication of this clear teaching about God as Father um, has to do with... um, uh, uh, overcoming a, pe- a terrible uh, pastoral problem that Christians sometimes face. Uh, to have this understanding clear, that the Father himself loves you, as Jesus says in 1627. This is the remedy for what uh, Dr. Ferguson calls um, a sinister syndrome that many Christians have suffered from, a deep-seated and damaging suspicion of God the Father manifests itself in a variety of ways. Um, On 172, he puts it succinctly um, in this opening sentence, you may think that the Father loves you only because Jesus died for you. I'm going to stop there for a second. Did any of you think when you read that, well, well, what's wrong with that sentence? You don't have to tell me. But I wouldn't be surprised if even as well-versed as you folks are, that you might have stopped for a minute because this is such a commonplace view. And it is so wonderful that Dr. Ferguson felt like he ought to just take it head on right here. And his point is very strong. This turns the gospel on its head. If you think that God loves you only because Jesus died for you, this turns the gospel on its head. And he goes straight to probably one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, uh, and that is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And he notes that the syntax makes it clear here. God is, is referring to the Father, for it's the Father that gives his Son. And so that the truth of this verse is this. It is because the Father loves you that the Son died for you. You see those sentences side by side? The Father loves you only because Jesus died for you? No, on the contrary. the Father. It's because the Father loves you that the Son did die for you. That's what the gospel is. And this isn't a minor matter. Um, the uh, and to go the other way uh, is soul destroying a deep down feeling that we may think we can love the Lord Jesus unreservedly but we're not quite so sure about a father 
who somebody had to die to persuade him to love us. Um, if a person has this conviction, it lingers unless it's thoroughly uh, swept out. Um, and the symptoms of doubt, anxiety, weak faith, and lack of assurance and joy are, are lurking uh, by the door. Um, and what is healing, One page 173, the theological elixir that heals when taken is John 16, 27. The Father himself loves you. He brings us on that page uh, a uh, beautiful uh, quote from John Owen, uh, Owen's 17th century English theologian, uh, probably the greatest English theologian uh, ever, an extraordinary man, lived from 1616 to 1683. Um, and he urges us to read over these words and ponder them. And I, I would urge you to do the same thing again. If you, Owen can be a little dense, you have to almost read it aloud to get it. He, you know, he wrote prim primarily in Latin and his English syntax t tends to reflect uh, the habits of Latin syntax. Um, if you know anything about Latin, uh, often you don't really know what the sentence is about until you get to the end of it, because you've got a verb with all kinds of endings that determine things. And um, also word order in Latin tends not to be that significant where in English it is. Um, but in any case, um, this is really a beautiful passage. And um, if you look down to the third section of the first quote, he says, Jesus Christ, in respect of the love of the Father, is but the beam, the stream, wherein, though actually all our light through, uh, excuse me, wherein, though actually all our light our refreshment lies, yet by him we are led to the fountain, the sun of eternal love itself. Yes, Jesus is love, but as it were, he's a beam of love from the sun. He's a stream of love from the ocean that is the Father. That's the point he makes down at the end. Um, in this place is serenity and quiet. Um, those who know God as tender, kind, loving, and unchangeable, and that particularly as the Father, as the great fountain and spring of all gracious communications of fruit and love. This Christ came to reveal. God is Father. Uh, the second quote is also quite powerful. He, he says, look, unacquaintedness with our mercies and privileges is sin as well as our trouble. And he, he wants to cure us of the sin and heal us of the troubles. Um, the, um, and so again, he concludes the free fountain and spring of all that we have in Christ is in the bosom of the Father. Dr. Ferguson concludes, if this touches a nerve in us, we need to fix our minds on these words of Jesus and let them flood our hearts. The Father himself loves you. Here's something to say ourselves every day. They're simple words, but life-changing, peace-giving, poise-creating. Uh, it's the work of the Spirit to bring us to that place. Well, we're almost out of time. I want to give some time for uh, uh, discussion if it's needed. I'll just note that uh, the last part, uh, he returns us, as it were, to the upper room. There's very encouraging signs from the apostles that they seem like they're getting it. Um, the... Um, uh, but he concludes with these precious words. There are tough things ahead. Um, but um, the, uh, um, 
he adds, I have said these things to you, that in me you would have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Peace and victory. Uh, and that concludes uh, this upper room discourse in a very powerful way. We'll uh, now uh, turn away from hearing him teach to having the privilege to hear Jesus pray in what Dr. Ferguson calls one of the most sacred moments recorded in all of Scripture. Um, and we'll take that up not next week, but in two weeks. So recall, next Wednesday we won't be meeting because I'll be in Atlanta for a meeting of the SJC. Um, but we'll meet the week after and begin that new section. So questions, comments, uh, observations about anything in the Upper Room Discourse, but particularly about these two points, uh, the correction of our apologetics and the uh, uh, correction of our understanding of the triune uh, love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, that is all perfectly and coordinatedly uh, expressed for our salvation. Was any of that last bit startling for any of you, or are you all pretty well settled in that? Bonnie. Uh, Dave, this is Bill. Um, this final section is really powerful. Um, and it, as Dr. Ferguson encourages um, to ponder uh, it thoughtfully, <laughs> I think we, in our um, walk, if we do indeed desire to grow in sanctification and holiness, um, we can be very hard on ourselves um, mm. when we are when we are worn down by the cares of the world or or remorseful over our falling into sin. Um, and it's in those states that it's often hard to fully grasp this fundamental uh, a priori love of the Father. Yes, yeah. Um, and, uh, and so it's... Uh, it's... And it's it's not it's not in this upper room discourse that I've ever really grasped it like this. Mm. But I think Ferguson makes a great point here that this is this is the Savior teaching his most beloved friends this fundamental principle, mm. and it, it's it's really powerful. Mm. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, when we when we think about those low points discouraged with ourselves to think uh, it was for this that my father sent his son to save me. That, I think, is a beautiful yeah. um, and encouraging uh, Yeah, right. Dave, I'll add a note. It's Molly. Yes. Um, I just thought I'd share, um, you know, sometimes we have those, um, those moments in our private time, in our personal study, and um, some stand out more than others. And I will say that um, the, uh, the time that I was reading through John 16 and came across verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. It was arresting in a time like none other and proof that the Spirit uses um, verses that would have otherwise seemed familiar in fresh ways mm. time mm. and time again. Um, but Great point. It was wonderful. So I appreciated Dr. Ferguson's elaboration and thoughts. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Uh, 
comment or thought or Well, again, thank you all for participating. Uh, I so en- enjoy uh, seeing uh, your names on the screen <laughs> every week. I'm going to very much miss that next Wednesday, uh, but I'll look forward to, to us getting together again the following Wednesday.